from Billy's Belly Folk and Bluegrass Festival in support of the Maine Grain Alliance, presenting a one-day festival of picking in the pines with 42 categories of music competition for prizes. Advance and gate admission tickets available Sunday, August 21st at 10 Clark Road in Anson, Maine, billysbelly.com. On Wednesday, July 27th, at the Alamo Theater on Main Street, Bucksport, join us for an evening of entertainment featuring Maine Summertime Stories. Come hear great stories told by talented local storytellers reflecting on summer experiences in the great state of Maine. The show goes from 5.30 to 7, doors open at 5. A suggested donation of $10 per person will gladly be accepted at the door. Light refreshments will be provided for free. This entertaining and interesting event is being presented by WERU Community Radio, Bucks Ports Wednesday on Main, and Northeast Historic Film. That's Maine Summertime Stories, Wednesday, July 27, 530, at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport. Come listen. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Opera House Arts in Stonington, featuring The War Story and Iliad from July 14th through 23rd. OperaHouseArts.org. The time's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, from the League of Women Voters Down East, is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the sixth program in our series this election year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about privatizing public policy. We ask the question, is philanthropy good for democracy? We'll discuss philanthropy, foundations, shadow networks for giving, and the private drivers of public policy, from the Koch brothers to the Gates-inspired Giving Pledge. We'll be taking your calls during the second half hour of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests this morning. Joining us in the studio today is Theta Scotchpole. Theta is the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, where she served as director of the Center for American Political Studies 1999 to 2006 and as dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences 2005 to 2007. She also serves as director of the Scholar Strategy Network. Uh, the author of nine books, 10 edited collections, and more than 100 articles. Her current research focuses on civic engagement, governmental transformation, and reform politics in the United States, um, and on the development of U.S. social and educational policies in historical and comparative perspective. <laughs> Welcome, Theta. Always <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> Love having you on. Joining us by phone today is Alec McGillis. Alec covers politics and government for ProPublica, McGillis um, previously spent three years writing for the New Republic and five years as a national reporter for the Washington Post, where he was part of the team whose coverage of the Virginia Tech shooting won the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for Breaking News. He won the 2016 Robin Toner Prize for Excellence in Political Reporting. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, and Harper's. Welcome, Alec. Hello, Alec. Looking for Alec. Okay. Yes, Alec's here. Okay, great. Um, so let's get started. Um, I'm going to read a little quote here starting, It's not a democracy. It's not even a constitutional monarchy. It's about what Bill and Melinda want. That's a quote from Greg Gonzalez, the co-founder of the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition, talking about the Gates Foundation and its influence over the global health landscape. Let's talk about that. 
In his 2014 article for the Atlantic, Garrel Marsh asks, is philanthropy good for democracy? He examines tax structures that allow the accumulation of great wealth, tax incentives that encourage charitable giving, and he wonders if money that might otherwise be available for elected officials to pay for programs decided through democratic legislation are instead spent to serve the private interests and priorities of a very wealthy few. We're going to talk about that question today. So, Theda, let me put it to you first and ask you to put this in historical context for us. Can you talk a little bit about the history of philanthropy in this country and giving, going back to Carnegie and big-time philanthropy in the Gilded Age and so forth? Just give us a little background there. Well, philanthropy by very rich people who mostly have made their fortunes in uh, the latest rising industries is, is nothing new. It's been there in the United States since, as you point out, since really the 19th century. Um, and it's, it's not untypical of a lot of other societies. We can look back at aristocrats in, in, in Europe um, and even in Asian countries like China, philanthropy is, is important. What sets the United States in the modern era apart, though, is that we have probably created tax structures uh, that much more than any other advanced industrial democracy um, allow the values and preferences of our very wealthy citizens to have a magnified impact in civic and political life. That's how I would put it. I'm not talking here about taxes that tax arrangements that allow the accumulation of more and more wealth, like the carried interest provision that um, Alec McGillis has written about. But I'm talking more about the the charitable giving um, deductions, uh, which sound nice, um, and in fact, um, a lot of Americans give to their churches or religious congregations and claim those deductions. But the most massive deductions are claimed by very wealthy people who are giving place to places like the charity I work for, Harvard University, um, which isn't really a needy institution, or they're giving to a variety of causes that they care about, uh, that they define, mm -hmm. many of which are, you know, you could say are worthy, but they're not def def dev decided by uh, any kind of democratic uh, or public yeah. deliberative yeah. process. Now, I mean, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates frequently invoke Carnegie back to the 19th century when they speak of their Giving Pledge campaign, which commits billionaires to giving away at least half their money. Um, and, you know, so you look at some of the things that they work on, eradicating malaria from Africa. I mean, what could be wrong with that? All right, so it's not replacing the water mains in Flint, Michigan. Still, you know, sort of, Alec, what's the problem with this? Well, the, you're, you're right that they, they do often invoke Carnegie, and he he wrote sort of a, a grand manifesto actually for uh, sort of high-end philanthropy and why why the very wealthy should give away a lot of their money, um, and that's and they frequently quote from that to to sort of explain their own giving and to urge others to follow their example. The the funny thing about the the manifesto is though is that there's a whole other part to it that doesn't get quoted as much and. And that really kind of gets at some of the the, the, the problems with this, this whole approach to uh, addressing society's problems. Um, Carnegie goes on this whole riff about how the very wealthy should should give away their money um, because uh, that they are simply in a better position to choose how to spend um, society's riches uh -huh. than than if the money were dispersed more broadly, either in the form of, of higher wages for, for workers um, or, uh, you know, sort of implicitly by, ta by taxation. Um, although ta uh, at the time that he wrote that, there was no, no income tax. So um, he was really referring more in the manifesto to, to wages. He had this remarkable quote where he said, said um, that if we were to give, if we were to give away our our money just sort of in a more in a in a in a broader way, or and let let regular folks decide how to how to use it on their own, um, in the form of higher wages. That would be a bad idea because it would be quote wasted in indulgence of appetite. So basically, <laughs> if um, if if, uh, if these plutocrats just were to to pay everyone a bit more or um, or pay higher taxes into the common wheel, that would money would get blown you know uh, basically on on on, on 
uh, booze and vice is, is basically what what Carnegie is saying, and and you see that mindset um, carry through to, to today, where you have these um, these these very wealthy individuals who really do uh, firmly believe that that it's that they have they will decide better how to use this money than if it were if more of it were going into into the common wheel and, and for all of us to decide how we wanted to um, uh, use it to to address our problems. Mm-hmm. They to talk about the, what you've been working on and how it reflects on this discussion. Okay, I will. Uh, before I start, I want to say that this is an issue, though, that cuts um, more ways than simply thinking about the very wealthy. Because the other thing about the charitable tax giving uh, system we have is that it encourages the creation of nonprofit organizations run by very good professional people. Like usually. the League of Women Voters and some others, right? <laughs> well, the League of Women Voters really started out as a, as a, as a, as a membership, a dues-paying membership association. So I'm not going to uh, put the League of Women Voters quite into the category of the various tax-privileged uh, nonprofit service delivery groups that have grown up in huge numbers in the United States since the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 1980s. And um, there are a lot of them. There are also a lot of advocacy groups that, that push various public interest causes across the entire political spectrum. And one of the things that happens when a lot of the, of the public purpose money in a society is channeled through tax-privileged foundations or uh, wealthy uh, people's private giving operations um, is that um, – the organizations that do a lot of the good spend a lot of their time begging for that money and applying for that money. So that's a social cost that, I mean, in some ways it's a, it's a, it's not a social cost because it employs a lot of college-educated people, but it is a social cost if you're talking about delivering, say, income supports or higher incomes which is now what's something we're beginning to be more cognizant of, uh, to large numbers of ordinary working and middle-income citizens. Um, There's an intermediary, you're saying. Yeah, we're, we're, we're diverting a lot of resources right. that in um, somewhat more social democratic countries would just efficiently go to, to those purposes to support family well, incomes and well-being. It, that's, that's a very good point. I, if I could just jump in real quickly. Sure. Another aspect to this is, that I've seen a lot um, is that it also diverts. It doesn't just divert the resources. It diverts the manpower. Yeah. I've seen so many cases of, of um, you know, very capable, um, you know, highly educated, well-meaning um, folks who instead of going to work for the, the government, the actual deliverer of the service, whether it's whether we're talking about education or, um, you know, some other aspect of, of the delivery of, of, of public service, are instead working for the sort of ancillary nonprofit um, foundation slash foundation um, outfit that is working in a given field around a given issue, um, but is not necessarily actually doing the actual work. And that that's that that needs to be done, and or it's not really sort of at the heart of the matter, and and you end up then often with people who are doing that work, the people who are in the actual public job of government and public service, are not necessarily maybe the most um, the, the best qualified for that work. The best qualified ones are sort of working over here on the side in, in the nonprofit realm, and, and certainly doing some you know doing some good work, but 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 often not doing not as directly sort of affecting um, the, the issue as they would be if they were actually um, in, in, in the public job itself. Doing the direct delivery. I mean, the government has, in some circles at least, a terrible reputation for efficiency of delivery and um, management of its resources, and we can all cite examples of fraud and waste. I mean, does this nonprofit service delivery really re- result in a more efficient and effective method of doing it than what the government would be able to do, or is that not true? Well, not necessarily, and the problem is that we're, it's not as visible and we don't have the measurement. Um, 
I would also point to the vast fundraising industry that's grown up. I remember when um, uh, I, I served with Derek, when I was graduate dean at Harvard, I served for a year with Derek Bach when he came back for one year during the Larry Summers crisis. And he said once, I thought this is hilarious, he said that when he was president of Harvard in the 1970s, he could fit the development office in his office. And when he came back in... Uh, you know, the early 2000s, he had to speak to them in Sanders Theater, which is our uh, is <laughs> where we have big public events. And, you know, uh, even as graduate dean, which is not an office that is devoted to raising money very much at Harvard, because people don't want to pay for PhDs, they want to pay for other glamorous things. Uh, every time I took a trip, I had some very bright uh, 20-something who would hand me huge documents that described everything about everybody I was going to meet. And these were talented, bright people who were working in the fundraising industry. The fundraising industry is pervasive, and all these wealthy magnates who are giving away money have entire bureaucracies to help them determine uh, where to give it. So I think the cost in personnel talent and time is just as important as the cost in money. True. Um, so now I'd be happy to talk about the research that I'm currently doing. Um, I have a team of, of students and colleagues and we're working on something called the Shifting Terrain Project. Theta, before you go on, let me just introduce you to the guests who might not have turned in at the beginning. So I hate to interrupt, but let me just okay. refresh the introductions. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is privatizing public policy. Is philanthropy good for democracy? Our guests this morning are Theta Scotchpole, whom you heard speaking just a moment ago. She's the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. And our other guest on the phone is Alec McGillis. Alec covers politics and government for ProPublica. So resume at that point, Theta, with the project that you're working on now. Okay, so I have a team of colleagues and students. We're working on what we call a shifting U.S. political terrain. And in this project, we're looking really at what for my research is a very recent period between 2000 and the present, although against a longer uh, historical background, we're asking how have organized um, constituencies, organized donors, um, organized think tanks um, changed around uh, the Republican and Democratic Party on the left and the right. And what does this tell us about the ideological and partisan polarization that we're seeing and also the ways in which government has failed to, to respond adequately to, to, to really astonishing increases in income and wealth inequality uh, in the last several decades. So part of that research is looking closely at organized groups of political donors on the right and the left, in particular at the Koch seminars, <laughs> which are um, gatherings of now over 500 wealthy conservatives who meet twice a year, usually renting entire resorts that David and, and, and Charles Koch do and ring them with security and listen to several days of, of speeches about libertarian and free market ideas and meet politicians, Republican politicians, and um, uh, strategize about how to give money, not just in elections, but to entire sets of other organizations, including organizations meant to mobilize and reach voters, to generate ideas, for example, in the universities or in think tanks. And then the counterpart to this on the left is uh, the Democracy Alliance of uh, center-left uh, uh, millionaires and billionaires. They, too, meet twice a year. Nowadays, they mainly rent um, an entire wing of a luxury hotel in a city, uh, although in the past they sometimes met in the same resorts as the Koch seminars, uh, but now they're a little more with it and, and meeting in the urban settings. And... So our research is really trying to figure out who are the millionaires and billionaires who participate in these and what difference does it make that they're concerting their efforts, that they're networking with one another, that they're building up a sense of like-mindedness. Because a lot of the research, both in political science and in, in quality journalism, I think focuses on donors one at a time. And, for example, it would look at the Koch brothers as individual donors. But the interesting thing about the Koch brothers is that they've gotten about 498 other people 
thank Mr. and Mrs. Ohio Widget Manufacturer to join them in these meetings. They usually come as husbands and wives and to take a longer term perspective on how to use money to affect ideas, uh, outreach to Latinos, um, uh, universities, uh, and similarly, the Democracy Alliance, which really has just over 100 people, it's kind of not grown as much as the Koch seminars, uh, invests in a whole range of advocacy groups um, uh, to the left of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. I want to put the same question to you, Alec. I know it's going to be just a slight change of subject, but talk about your article for The New Yorker and the other work you've done on um, charitable giving and how that reflects on our conversation. Sure. Well, I, I did a, a big article for The New Yorker that ran just a couple of months ago um, looking at this whole question of, of uh, high-end philanthropic giving in this sort of new Gilded Age that we have. And I focused on um, David Rubenstein, who is the uh, co-founder of the Carlisle Group, this huge private equity firm that's based in Washington, D.C., and that's become incredibly successful over the years by uh, basically sort of combining Wall Street private equity investing with um, sort of Washington lobbying and uh, figuring out how to make money sort of through through Washington connections, especially in the military-industrial complex. Um, and David Rubenstein is you know has become fabulously successful um, as the as the co-founder of that firm. He's also become a um, a very big philanthropist, and he's um, made sort of a, a, a niche for himself in his giving what he calls patriotic philanthropy, where he's giving a lot of money to support um, Washington institutions um, and, and uh, landmarks. Uh, he helped repair, actually paid for, paid for half the cost of repairing the Washington Monument when it was cracked in an earthquake. Um, he's paid millions and millions to the various memorials in Washington and uh, Monticello and, and all those sorts of places. Um, bought a copy of the Magna Carta, Magna Carta for $21 million and installed it on, in, on public view in, in Washington, that sort of thing. Um, and he, um, he's an interesting, interesting figure because he has become a big philanthropist and is getting a lot of um, praise for his philanthropy. Um, at the same time, he has been very, very pivotal in helping to pres preserve this um, tax loophole that Theta mentioned earlier, um, the carried interest loophole, which allows private equity firms private equity managers to have their incredibly high pay taxed at a very low rate. Um, and this loophole, which more and more people now sort of agree across the political spectrum is, is not really fair or tenable, um, has managed to survive um, for years and years, um, thanks um, in large part to lobbying by people like David Rubenstein. And so my, my piece gets at this whole question of how should we think about this? How should we think about um, the fact that someone like David Rubenstein is, on the one hand, giving away quite a bit of his money. On the other hand, he's paying an extraordinarily low tax rate um, and, is, and is working very hard to uh, preserve that very low tax rate. And so you, you have the basic uh, uh, charitable tax deduction, of course, um, underlying all this. So every, everything he's giving away, um, he gets a, a, a very big tax deduction for um, because he's, because he's a, a someone who pays taxes at the highest margin. So you, the, the wealthy get a much bigger advantage from their charitable tax uh, deductions than, than the rest of us. But, uh, but even above and beyond that charitable tax deduction, he's also paying a very low tax rate because of this, this loophole for private equity managers. And so I, you know, I've, there are some people, when you, when you bring this up with some people, they say, well, what's the big deal? The guy's, the guy's giving away a lot of money to, to, a, to val you know, worthy causes. Um, why, why does it matter if he's if he's um, giving it in that form instead of in the form of taxes? Um, and and so the piece gets to that that sort of crucial question, which really is kind of the question at the heart of this this whole debate about high end philanthropy. Right. And you know, so the question is, and this remember when Ted Turner gave all that money to the UN because the government wouldn't pay its UN bill, and so the question is, like, what what's wrong with that? But you know, is it a question of fixing the National Monument versus fully staffing the IRS or, you know, fixing the Lincoln Memorial versus repairing infrastructure problems or, um, you know, fixing the New York Public Library versus fixing infrastructure elements? I mean, ma meeting basic human needs, these are the trade-offs that we as ordinary citizens, I guess, are not allowed to make because um, wealthy donors 
use their money to fund their own priorities. I mean, it's also um, a chipping away at the health of our democracy. Um, I'd like to point to that side of it as well, because it's not that just that uh, David Rubenstein and others who are doing similar things, accumulating wealth and then giving a lot of it away, are making choices that might be made in other ways. That's true. Um, I think maybe sometimes they make better choices. So I'm not going to um, be able to argue mm-hmm. that um, it's always the wrong choices. But they are actually using our money, not just theirs, because that's what these, t- at least in the social sciences, that I'm, I'm a social scientist, we treat these tax deductions as if they were foregone taxes. So yeah. they're really using my money and yours, uh, uh, not just their own, um, to, uh, to make choices. And as time passes, Americans also become less and less aware of what it costs to have the things that we together need. I mean, I remember in the research I did on American voluntary associations through much of American history, they were dues-paced. And a lot of times, the people who participated in these associations would explain that dues were like taxes, that if you didn't pay your dues to your fraternal group or your women's group or your veterans group, it wasn't going to be able to do things. And it was like the government if you didn't pay your taxes. That sensibility, by the way, still persists. My uh, former PhD student now um, um, at the Brookings Institution, Vanessa Williamson. Who was on our show earlier this year. She did a thesis on what Americans think about taxes. And Americans still believe, there's still the belief that it's our duty to pay taxes. And there are a lot of people who will articulate this traditional idea that if we don't pay them, we're not going to have things that we want together. But I think what's happening is that these tax arrangements, both on the income-generating side and on the giving side, are eroding the connection that citizens would make about how much it costs to do various things. Most Americans would probably want to repair the Washington Monument. Mm-hmm. Um they also want to make sure that people have Social Security and Medicare and uh, most still would want some kind of basic health insurance. And we don't have the resources for those things because more and more of it is diverted right. uh, to individuals and to foundations. Yeah. And this is not a liberal conservative thing in the final analysis because right. it was liberals who pioneered a lot of this. Well, and as Gerilyn Marsh points out in the article I mentioned at the top of the show – these foundations fight to the death to preserve that charitable yeah. deduction and to preserve their own interests. Through well, for example, I'll give a very concrete example. Very early in the Obamacare debates, back in 2009 and 2010, one of the sources of revenue for paying for health insurance, which remember, Obamacare is about health insurance for low and little, lower middle income people who had been left out of the various tax subsidized forms of health insurance we had in this country to that point, uh, one of the ideas was to, to to modify the charitable tax deductions so that if you're giving to very wealthy, um, if you're a very wealthy giver or giving to a very wealthy cause, you wouldn't get as much. Well, I mean, Harvard University went to war. The major foundations went to war. Um, this was liberals otherwise who would be patting themselves on the back as do-gooders uh, who were making sure that that source of funding for uh, the most egalitarian major social policy to pass in the last 50 years was not there. Yep. Gara, would you like to jump in with a comment? Oh, uh, Gara, no, sorry. I, 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 uh, Gara on the mind is Alex, that, sorry. That moment, that, that was such an amazing moment, really, when, when Obama proposed this this source of new revenue for 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 the government. And and the you had this... I remember just watching it get quashed so quickly by the foundations and 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 the universities. The universities were a huge part of that mm-hmm. because they rely so much on the, on these big gifts. And their 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 you know the university lobby is way more powerful than we realize. There you have them. You know, and every pretty much every congressional district in the country has a has a bunch of colleges and universities, and they just pick up the phone and they they tell their guys, forget about this. There's no way um, we we can live with this. And what that, just to be clear, what that proposal would have done was simply to um, to slightly reduce the the yeah. deduction that the that the wealthiest can claim in the charitable giving, and to bring it slightly closer to the level of deduction that that middle class taxpayers get when they make deductions. Because the way it works under our current system.
system because because the marginal tax rate is higher for um, for the very wealthy when they get a deduction um, for charitable giving they are getting a much bigger deduction than than the rest of us and yep. all this proposal would have done was to would was to bring that down uh, a few notches and 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 my god gosh the 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 backlash from these basically liberal institutions, foundations, and universities was so strong. Yeah, yeah, a backlash that worked through a Democratic-led Congress and uh, Democratic Party-led Congress. And the best studies at the time suggested it wouldn't have affected really the giving uh, to to the to the universities and the foundations. Um, Though many argued that it would. Yeah, yeah, they did, but there wasn't a lot of evidence of that. Yeah. And, and frankly, wealthy people give to Harvard University and other major universities and colleges because for they, reasons. For, for reasons that are more than just purely yep. the marginal uh, tax benefit that they get. So let me remind our listeners um, that it's the half-hour break, and we invite you to join our conversation at this point. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Theta Scotchpole, Victor S. Thomas, Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, and Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government for ProPublica. Our topic today is privatizing public policy. Is philanthropy good for democracy? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378. We have only one listener line open today, so be patient if you get a busy busy signal. If you do get through, we would ask you to ask your question um, and take the answer offline so that other listeners can get through. Uh, don't wait to the last minute. Get your call in early. That's 866-625-9378. So to continue the conversation, Thady, you were saying that um, that this shift in emphasis towards private giving breaks the connection between people, their taxes, and their government. And I wonder if there is a sort of a libertarian, small government worldview that sort of plays into that. I mean, it's not, you said, just a conservative. It's also liberals. But how much of this charitable giving and the um, sort of subsuming of public purpose through private giving breaks that connection between government and the services that government provides pe- that people really want. Well, I think it does. I mean, there certainly are libertarians uh, who, as a matter of philosophy, believe that that most of this shouldn't be done through government. I actually don't think they're a major part of, of conservatism in the United States, and they don't account for the liberal views and and also i mean the there is a whole grounding in american society and culture for the idea of 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 charitable giving and uh, most regular people give through their religious congregations mm-hmm. or their religious connections um and i don't think there's anything in the world that could turn that could change that fundamentally or even should that's what america america has always been about a combination of government action and voluntary action particularly in communities local communities or in faith communities or in value communities of various kinds um but we are seeing a new kind of um extreme and distortion of this with the rise of the super wealthy once again and their ability to manipulate the channels of giving. And in our research, we're looking at some of the ways in which they manipulate charitable giving channels to actually shape politics, which is not supposed to be exactly the way it it works. But a lot of the vehicles that are tax privileged are allow for secret giving into politics. Um, uh, my own personal view, apart from my research, is that we ought to get rid of some of these distinctions and simply let people give where they're going to give. But it should all be visible, transparent. Um, right. I, I think it's very discouraging that people spend a lot of time figuring out whether they're going to have C3s, C4s, C5s, C6s, and how they're going to manipulate them. And frankly, it isn't all Citizens United in the Supreme Court. Uh, the, the, the very wealthy have phalanxes of people to help them figure out how to Shield how to there. use the tax code. And that's been going on for decades. Now, um, Alec, you didn't have any trouble finding out about Rubenstein's giving, did you? Or Oh, 
Well, no, because his giving is is um, is traditional charitable giving. Although, in, you know, giving to to C threes, um, that he it's interesting. He does not give much, if anything, to um, to political entities, whether to parties, candidates, or or these C fours. And, and the, the C fours are these uh, basically political groups that kind of masquerade as um, as social welfare entities, and you, you don't you don't get a tax deduction if you give to a C four, um, but it, but they are um, but they're not disclosed, and so that that's where you've seen this big boom in, in political giving to these five hundred one C four groups, such as American Crossroads, uh, GPS, which is the big group started by Karl Rove, has been um, you know very prominent these last few campaign cycles. What Rubenstein does is is that. He he manages to actually he's managed to um, acquire a lot of influence in Washington through his traditional charitable giving. I mean, it's he's a, a classic example of how um, giving so generously to very high-profile causes can elevate you into being. Uh, it gives you sort of an aura of of influence and and um, an aura of uh, of sort of benevolence uh, that that lends you then great weight when you go to to plead your case. For, for an issue that matters to you, such as in his case, the, the carried interest right, loophole, right. he he takes it even further. He um, by in his case, it becomes very very sort of direct kind of influence where he will um, he one of the things he pays for in Washington are these very uh, sumptuous dinners, uh, salon dinner salons that are held at the Library of Congress every few months um, in the beautiful Great Hall of the Library of Congress, where he brings together. Um, invites a whole bunch of congressmen and their wives and their spouses to come to the Great Hall, and he'll he'll have a, um, a famous historian come for dinner, uh, Robert Caro or um, you know Ron Chernow or you know, any any number of Doris Kearns Goodwin. You know that these kind of folks will come for dinner um, at the Great Hall. They will have this, this this lovely dinner, and then he'll sit with the historian after dinner, and he'll have a nice conversation um, about about you know the president or subject of the historian's work and uh, on the one hand it's this nice you know just this nice evening and exposes these congressmen to to you know to, to you know some to some history um, on the other on the other hand of course it's a, a fantastic way for David Rubenstein to find himself alone in the room uh, with dozens of congressmen every couple of months who feel beholden to him for this nice evening and yeah. um, that's the sort of thing that most of us don't get to do yeah I mean, uh, thinking about the the big foundations, Harvard, you mentioned um, the Gates Foundation, the Koch brothers, the Clinton Foundation, the Ford Foundation. How much does it happen where once those big players set a, a priority that everybody else who's working in that field has to sort of follow along? You know, um, the head of the Rockefeller Foundation famously said of the Ford Foundation, which was much, much, much bigger, said everybody watches what the fat kid in the canoe does because he can tip the canoe for everybody else. And I I wonder about that effect where you always have to keep your eye on the big player because that's where the action is going to be. Once those priorities set, does everybody have to follow along? Well, they don't have to, but, you know, there has been research on foundations, uh, including those that have a clear ideological profile and others uh, that, for the most part, they they claim not to, um, they do, I would call it the lemming effect. I mean, there <laughs> waves of, of, of ideas about how to do good spread through the foundation world, and you can see it. I mean, it, it takes the form of a new president at one of these major institutions coming in and holding a reconsideration of what they're doing, and out of that comes uh, a new set of themes. Um, on the liberal side, usually international. On the conservative side, much more focused on changing American culture and, and public policy. And then others follow suit in waves until, you know, that plays out for five to eight years, and then we have another one. Um, th there's also research that suggests differences on the two uh, sides in the foundation world that liberal foundations have huge staffs that micromanage shorter-term initiatives, at least until recently. But conservatives have invested much more um, 
for example, they'll pick up a major professor in a university and invest in my colleague Harvey Mansfield for years and years, who then generates large numbers of students who go out and shape the legal and political world. A lot, a lot of them are in Congress right now. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one phenomenon. I, mean, I think the other one that I, I'd just go back to Alex's point about uh, Rubenstein, I think that's very interesting that he only works through, through charitable giving. But of course, in the organizational world, a lot, of, a lot of groups on the right and the left have twinned organizations. They will use the same name virtually, and they'll have a C3 side, which can engage in um, uh, things that are defined as charitable giving or education, and then they'll have a C4, which is not tax privileged, but... Where the C3 is tax privileged. Yeah, yeah. The same people. For example, Americans for Prosperity, which is the flagship uh, Coke political organization, is both a C3 and a C4, and it does... A lot of its training of young people and it's um, through the C3 side because that's educational. And then it does its political campaigns and policy campaigns directly through C4. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of coordination allows certain donors to be kept secret, others to be more visible. But it allows the same people to be using both sets of activities in a coordinated way. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. So let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Theta Scotchpole, the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, and Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government for ProPublica. If you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. You can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378. So let's sort of just recap um, the problems for democracy that we see in this. And rather than su suggest uh, the answers to you, let me let you answer. Uh, you go first, Alec. Well, the, the, the basic problem, as I see it, is that you, you are creating uh, a kind of a, a parallel system where you have, um, especially now in our time, in our new gilded age of extreme inequality and just this rise of extreme wealth, you have um, you have people who are making these decisions on their own um, how they how they think that um, the this this outsized wealth that they've acquired should be should be spent um, even if it means giving just yet another um, hundred million or two hundred million to to Harvard or Yale uh, and uh, meanwhile you have um, you know a, a common wheel a, a public um, a, the, 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 the the government and in, in, in the sort of public realm that we hold together, that is, that is scrimping for pennies. And one example that uh, comes to mind, just sort of a particularly stark example of this, was of course um, a couple years ago when the Ford Foundation um, kicked in, what was it? I think um, 125 million for Detroit um, to help Detroit through its through the bankruptcy and to to spare Detroit from having to sell off some of the the. Um, the treasures at the Detroit Institute of Art, um, and you know, on the one hand, that was um, a very, you know, it was a very, obviously, very helpful and um, crucial gift by the Ford Foundation, and sort of an attempt by them to um, to kind of reestablish their 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 roots in Michigan. Um, on the other hand, um, it was just a sign of how, how, where things have come to that one of you know that this this once this great American city. Um, is having to turn to to the private foundation world simply to to avoid bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, well, or to avoid selling its art right. treasures yeah. because right. it right. it still <laughs> yeah. went yes, through and it still cut the pensions of right. uh, the public uh, uh, employees in Detroit. I grew up near Detroit, and I remember as a teenager taking the bus down downtown Detroit to see the city and going to the Art Institute and. I mean, just look at the city now. It's just been, it's, it looks like a war zone. Yeah. So problems for democracy, Theta. Well, uh, I, I agree. The setting up of a parallel system in which the, the wealthy, the, the values of the wealthy are magnified. That's the way I would put it. It's a newer aristocracy. It reminds me of the kinds of aristocracies that, it, that held sway at the, end, at the end of the old regime before the French Revolution. 
in Europe, and it does not lead to good outcomes uh, because it misallocates resources. But I just would stress again a point that both Alec and I made earlier, which is in many ways it's the distortion of talent and of the time of talented people and people of goodwill uh, because it's the ripple effect. I like to think of it as a society in which everybody is looking upward. People are attending charity events. Um, they're networking. Um, and a lot of the effects, Alex's article is wonderful in this regard, operate through the networks that are created around the expenditures. There just is not a lot of evidence that for the most part, wealthy people or wealthy organizations walk in and hand a check to a politician to buy a vote. That is... Not what happens. That's the form of corruption the Supreme Court seems to think we ought to be worried about. That is not how it happens. And I guess any of us who have any common sense would realize that, of course, that isn't how it happens. I mean, I'll give an example. I mean, uh, Alex Hurdle Fernandez, who is one of the people that works with me on this Shifting Terrain project, we, er, he was a, he's now at Columbia University, just got a wonderful j job with his PhD. But some years ago, he was we were working together on a paper about Democrats and taxes. We were interested in the question of how the Democrats could be in favor of doing things through government, but constantly agreeing to cut taxes. Uh, this is one of the conundra that, that, you know, obviously Alex's article casts some light on. Um, well, we interviewed somebody who came out of Nancy Pelosi's office who had worked as her uh, policy director. And there we were. I think Alex was a second-year graduate student, and we were interviewing her, and we wanted to know, well, okay, you were in office there, and you were in the majority during two years of the first two years of Obama's presidency, and Obama had said, we need to raise taxes on the rich and not renew the Bush tax cuts that were so generous from the early 2000s. Why didn't you bring that up while you still had the majority and you could actually do what the president of your party was advocating? <laughs> the woman said, she said, well, once a month we'd have a policy meeting. And sometimes at the end of the meeting, somebody would say something about maybe we should put this on the agenda, and everybody would roll their eyes <laughs> and put it off till next time. Uh -huh. This is the Democrats right, right. under a very strong liberal, Nancy Pelosi, who made a big difference on a lot of things when she was majority leader. And, and then the other point the person made was, well, some of our uh, representatives or senators had been to fundraisers with wealthy people, and they didn't think that $250,000 a year in income was a very high income. Right, right. And I thought when we left the meeting, I thought I was going to have to get Alex a drink. Mm -hmm. uh, he was so deeply shocked mm -hmm. at this. Of course, $250,000 a year is an astonishingly high income. Uh, sure is in Maine. Uh, well, it is yeah. in the society as a whole. And they didn't. that tells you who they're going to gatherings right, with. Right. Some of them fundraisers, but some of them maybe those nice dinners. Yeah. I mean, I know it's changing, but since we are the League of Women Voters, let me ask the question, what role do women play in this philanthropic network? And is there a power disparity between women and men in this? Uh, you go first, Alec. Boy, you know, that's a good question. I... I'm not um, attuned enough to the philanthropic world, you know, uh, sort of per se, to to sort of uh, to know uh, the, the the folks I've focused on in that article were, were the were really the donors, and of course the, the, the these big these Wall Street guys, these Wall Street titans, who have become such a huge presence in in in, in, a, in the philanthropic world now are almost entirely. Guys, yeah, um, I thought you were going to say that. Uh, so we're talking about guys like David Rubenstein and Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone and Ken Griffin from Citadel. Um, you, you go down the list, and they're they're all pretty much masters of the universe. Um, and um, I, so I mean, I, I know one, one person, of course, that immediately comes to mind is, is, is Melinda Gates, who um, is right there with with Bill. Um, but um, my 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 sense is that there is an interesting interesting dynamic in that. So it does. There definitely are there are a lot. The 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 realm of the nonprofit on the, on the side of the receiving organizations, the nonprofit realm, is has 
as you know, knows an endless, uh, you know, countless number of, of of women in top positions, and and also in the development role. If you think, just the um, when I think of um, you know people I know who who do the actual development work, the fundraising, that is a very heavily, um, um, you know. Women have a, um, a significant niche. role there. Yeah. yeah, and so you do have this interesting, interesting dynamic where you often have um, the 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 organizations that are seeking the support um, are, are are very often um, have women in prominent roles, and then very many of the the givers, the donors, are guys. Yeah, Theta. Yeah, you know, I think um, here's what I can say about this. I, I believe that. Um, Women as wives have always been involved in the giving of their wealthy husbands who were the accumulators. Probably the males are still disproportionately the accumulators, but we're seeing some female accumulators now. And um, women also live longer than men. So um, you can have the phenomenon of a woman who, who inherits her husband's um, pile and uh, then remains very powerful in, in, in managing the, 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 the fortune into the next generation and giving away part of it. Um, in our work on the Koch Network and on the Democracy Alliance, these are political donors who are giving to C3s in part and to C4s, uh, these sets of donors of regularly networked like-minded donors. Uh, we have uh, used every method available to humankind to come up with lists of about one to 200 on both sides. These are secret networks, so they're not handing us their donor lists, including my friends in the Democracy Alliance. They have not handed me the list of, of partners, um, I, uh, as they're called. But we've put together lists, and we've then done a couple of very interesting things with them. We've looked at the question of family groups, and I can say that the Koch Network is much more likely to be husband-wife couples in which the husband is still active in business. Um, the um, um, in the Democracy Alliance, which is the progressive left donors, you see many more women, you see gay couples, you see even a few African-Americans and Latinos, not very many. Uh, the industrial profile is very interesting. On the left, there tend to be more um, heirs and heiresses of big fortunes, we think. We've not nailed that down completely, but it looks like... Second or third generation. Yeah, people who are giving away, who, who are managing family foundations or family... Who, 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 do not, who weren't the prime accumulators. Uh, and they're definitely... The industry profile is fascinating because about a third, if I recall correctly, uh, on both lists are Wall Street connected. Mm -hmm. So they're the hedge fund people. They're the investors. Uh, and that's that's you know that goes both ways, both liberals and conservatives. But then the liberal millionaire billionaires who are politically active in these in this consortium tend to be in things like information services, high tech, healthcare, education industries. The uh, the conservative uh, donor couples tend to be uh, in mining, manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, and they're spread out all over the country. They live all over the country. The liberals, I mean, boy, I mean, the Acela Corridor on the East Coast and from Seattle to Los Angeles with a little dot there in Dallas and in, in, in Colorado, but for the most part, they're coastal. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're you know coming to the end of the show, and I don't want to let us wrap up without talking about what we can do or what citizens can do. So we've identified a couple of problems for democracy through the course of our conversation, the way priorities tip towards the very wealthy, um, the uh, dilution of effect because there's a whole class of people chasing the money rather than delivering services, um, a lack of transparency, did I say that already, and um, uh, the lack of diversity in the demographics of the group. So what can citizens do to bring this into more alignment with democratic principles, and how would we be able to tell if this was working well for democracy? You want to go first, Alec? Uh, well, I think one very uh, specific concrete thing is, is this matter of the deduction um, and whether we should um, 
re- reform the laws so that the, the very wealthy are getting um, a deduction closer to to what the rest of us get. And you know, the the odds of that being brought up anytime soon, given how fast it was, it was quashed by um, by the the, the the foundation and ch- charitable lobby, university lobby, a couple years ago is. You know, odds are pretty pretty low. But if it were to come back up, um, it, it would, you know citizens should be aware of what's at stake there and 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 real, realize that when you have people like the universities um, coming in and saying, "Oh, this will be terrible for us," um, you know, we uh, this is you know this is charity. This is you know mom and apple bread, apple pie. Um, that that to be a little more bit more aware of the self interest that that's that's involved there. That would, that would be one one part of it, I'd say, um, and and I think I think some of it is also just a matter of general awareness for people to to to, to think a little bit harder about what's what's really going on here, and to maybe pause before we we shower these philanthropists with with laurels um, for their for their quote generosity, and realize that a lot of their this generosity is as they they said is is money that really um, they are. They have been sort of privileged to give money that was headed for the public treasury. Yep. They've been privileged to give it thanks to to our tax laws. Yep. Peter? Yeah, you know, I um, actually um, getting money out of politics and money out of civic life is a big cause among progressives now. I don't believe in it as much as many people do, partly because I don't think it's possible. But I think what is possible is um, much more transparency. Um, transparency about the tax code. Now, we research shows us that that's one of the toughest things for people to talk about in public, and you have to do it with concrete trade-offs. You have to make the trade-offs uh, because if you tell Americans, do you want a tax deduction or does somebody else deserve one, the answer is always going to be yes, as long as there's no sense of what's being given up. So I think it would come as a, as, as a surprise to many Americans that, for example, when a wealthy person is doing something that looks wonderful, that they're actually giving away their tax money too, uh, or at least they're requiring them to pay taxes in lieu of what they're – and that, that point could be made more in public discussions of what the trade-offs are. Um, on the political giving side or the this whole C3, C4 thing, I think the left and the right should get together and simply get rid of those distinctions and just say that any donor who gives to any, any cause uh, has to be reported mm-hmm. so that we know – uh, for individuals and for sets of people like the Koch Network, the Democracy Alliance Network, we know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, uh, that is just basic to a democracy. If the rest of us can't see what's happening, then how do we even know what we th- to, to formulate what to think about it? Yep. We're running out of time this morning, so I'll give you each a quick 30 seconds for parting thoughts. Alec, last shot. Oh, uh, I think I've, I've pretty much laid it out there. If I, if I could just put a little um, <laughs> plug my own self-interest, um, since this is all occurring in the context of um, of, of this this crazy presidential campaign that we have. Um, I just today um, put up a very, very long in-depth article on a related subject, which is basically how um, the Republican Party has cracked up uh, and focusing on one place in America, Dayton, Ohio. spent a lot of time there and and did a very deep dive on how the uh, Republican Party kind of collapsed in this one place and and led to the rise of Donald Trump. A lot of history and research in that article, and some of your listeners might find it interesting. Um, Alec, if you send me a link to that article, I'll post it with a note from the show. Thank you. Theta, last word? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to read that one. (laughs) (laughs) Since uh, how how the Republican Party has has split apart uh, is fascinating. Um, You know, I I think uh, we could take something like uh, health reform and health insurance, and it would be just fascinating to look at the array of tax-privileged actors who are either trying to substitute for that or trying to defeat it using all kinds of mechanisms that are really deploying the money all of us yeah. um, owe in taxes. 
Um, even though most Americans really have a pretty big stake in making sure that we have seamless health insurance for everyone, since even those who have good health insurance usually have relatives or friends who, don't. who are at risk or yeah. uh, could be without it. Here comes our theme music. That means we're running out of time this morning. So thank you to our guests, Theta Scotchpole, the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, and Alec McGillis, who covers politics and government for ProPublica. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org. You can go there for more information about this topic, to read some of the articles we talked about on on the air, or to learn about other shows in this series. And you can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. See you here next month. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners.